0: What a awesome time! Can you just feel the Holy Spirit just settling on this place? I have a word for Germany. Why don't you stand up and let's just uh, extend your hands towards our brother, um, just as we are worshiping. I just have this—I uh, have a sense that there's uh, Germany is going to experience um, a move of God. <coughs> First, uh, I heard the seeds of the martyrs, um, it's like the blood of Abel crying out from the ground. I felt like there's the, the seeds of the martyrs, this is the time for them to germinate and for them to be released over the land. And uh, I felt like the, the revival in Germany, you know, many revivals start grassroots level like with students and the Jesus movement, but I felt like this movement is going to start with Daniel's and Joseph's. People in government are going to begin to be moved on by God. And I, I saw that the Lord had already planted, He'd already seated the government with Daniels and Josephs and even Pauls who said that he had to go speak to the king, and I really believe that the, this is the hour, this is Germany's hour, and the Lord's going to begin to move on Germany, right in the, the very government of Germany, and that even even uh, leaders, uh, governors of uh, provinces, that the Lord's going to move on them, that they're going to begin to see visions, and dreams, and, God's, and angelic visitations, even like Cornelius, where the Lord sent an angel to talk to Cornelius about salvation, and connect him with Peter, I just feel like supernatural, there's a supernatural kind of Vortex happening over Germany the Lord's highlighted Germany. This is the, this is Germany's time I feel like the churches in Germany gonna be visited like in the charismatic movement even Orthodox uh, Churches who've who've been uh, they're more like museums and monuments to the past the Lord's gonna visit the museums He's gonna visit the monuments and they're gonna become movements. monuments are gonna become movements Museums are going to become places of inspiration, and Lord, we just release that right now over Germany. And um, the Lord, uh, there's, a, there's a verse in the Psalms that says that the Lord is with us, and the, uh, the Lord is for us, and those who are with us. And uh, the Lord's going to surround you, in particular, going to be a catalyst to a revival in Germany. The Lord's going to move you into political places. And, uh, you're a Daniel yourself. The Lord's going to move you into places to influence government. And remember that the, this revival is going to begin with government and move into the into the uh, grassroots places. It's going to start from the top and move to the bottom. It's the Lord's choosing. And Lord, we just release that over Him right now in Jesus' name that you would give him wisdom as you gave Joseph for, for seasons and times, and, and uh, Lord, that you would give him insight, that he would, be, um, he, he would understand dreams and riddles and uh, interpret parables and uh, see past veils. Lord, we just pray for that in the name of Christ, that you would give him favor uh, with people in high places as Joseph... Uh, uh, a man's gift will make room for him, be, bring him before kings and great people. Lord, we just pray right now that your uh, gifts, the gifts that you've given him, uh, Ryan, that they would just be released into, uh, there would be an open door. There would be um, like the the um, like cupbearer when he remembered Joseph. Lord, we just pray in the name of Jesus that, that you would release him out of the... Um, the confinements of a small pond of influence and that you would release them into the oceans of humanity. In Jesus' name. That's good. For Reinhardt. Yep. Get her done. And um, I think the... You know, you're here, Reinhardt, because I feel like there's a covenant happening between your people and our people. I think it was Ruth who said, your people are our people. And um, there's some kind of a family merging. You know, uh, kings oftentimes would marry the daughters of other kings because um, just a little history lesson. Do you know that, that marriage was never to be just between husband and wife? That it was be, That when they married, they actually merged families? And that's the reason why kings would marry the daughters of other kings because the marriage was never intended to be between just a man and a wife, but it was intended to be between their families, their tribes. And uh, there's some kind of a marriage happening between between y'all. I was for the t- country of Texas. Y'all and us all. Is us all worth? I don't think so. Whatever, but that's good. That's good, though, and I'm right about that. Yep. by February, March we're going to start hearing about it. start hearing about it in the I just see some kind of a newspaper article about uh, something happening in the in government. Well, that's good. So Lord, we just pray right now that you would just release that, that everything that was spoken would just come to pass, that right now that this, we just release these words and they would become. They would create a new world for Germany and Germans, and for um, the people of, of that country. And, Amen. All right, that's good. Well, let's pray for me. <laughs> Jesus bless the speaker, Lord. We just we prayed tonight that you would just um, unveil some um, things to us that would cause us to be cultural transformers. That we would that we would be. Um, now, that we would literally be seeds uh, planted uh, to inspire hope and faith in, in God Himself. Um, that we would be hope for the hopeless. Uh, we'd be joy for the depressed. We'd be prosperity for the poor. And um, we'd be healing for the sick. And um, Lord, we'd be the right mind for those who um, need uh, a new mind. And Lord we'd be just a catalyst to uh, transformation in every area of, of society it's time for us to um, it's time for us to get out of the walls of uh, the church and begin to move into the halls of history. Father, we just pray for that in Jesus name. let there be in this place people inspired tonight to uh, break down the barriers of small thinking and begin to believe that God can do amazing things with normal, everyday, supernatural, crazy people. (laughs) Yeah, if you're just a normal person, you're like a royal priesthood, a holy nation, (laughs) people for God's own possession, and the, the least in this room is greater than John the Baptist. Uh, actually, the least in this room would be greater than Moses, John the Baptist, David, anybody you can name in the Old Testament. The least person in this room would be greater than them. So, if you feeling bad for yourself is just security in the wrong world. How many of you know insecurity is just security in the wrong world? It's just, a, as Bill was sharing tonight, just a bad idea. I want to talk about casting vision and capturing hearts. And why don't you turn to Hebrews chapter 11? And I've just um, I've had something on my heart for a while, and have actually been I've finished just finishing um, a book um, about transforming societies. And so I've been really, you know, thinking about all these ideas. We've been um, doing a series. The series has kind of been titled standing in the presence of kings, and we've been talking for a while about what does it take to inspire cultural transformation, and we're just students of this. How many of you know that that in, um, in modern history, I don't know that there's a city, at least in, in our day, that's, that you would drive to? I mean, I don't know that there's a place that you could go to. I'm talking about a city where you could say, that city's been completely transformed by revival. But I believe that God is going to give us a city. Now, it's awesome, you know, when we, um, in the early days, when we go to Toronto and we would see God move, it was awesome to be able to go to a church that was completely transformed by revival. To be able to go into the four walls of a church and go, this is what it looks like when you just love God and let God do whatever He wants to do. Wouldn't it be awesome if there was a city like that? Like, wouldn't there be awesome if we could take our city council and say, we want to take you to wherever, and that they could could capture a vision for what it looks like to have one city in revival. And Bill uh, has shared this testimony several times I don't know if I need to get the details because I wrote it in my book and I, I need to make sure I got them right. But um, I know it was in Vacaville, California. Is that true? And Bill was in Vacaville, California. He's told this story many times, but maybe for those few of you that haven't heard it. Um, he he, got, he went, was in Vacaville, California and he walked into a prayer meeting and one of the... Uh, uh, I think it was started out with a gentleman in the prayer meeting. Why, why don't you just come up and share that so you can get it accurate. I'm... I'm nervous about getting the tea so bad you'll be on the front row going, uh, no, it wasn't anything like that.
1: Um, it was an all day prayer meeting. I was standing off to the side. his a pastor friend that I corresponded with but had never met, named Mike Savello of Utica, New York. And we were standing over here on the, on the, in the aisle on the side. He leaned over to me and he says, Bill, God is looking for a city, a city that would belong entirely to Him. And once he gets that one city, it will be like a domino effect across the nation. And I turn and said, Mike, and I feel like running is that city. Of course, he feels like you to that city because it's not a race against each other; it's a race against time. You know, it's, it's whoever gets it first actually brings about a breakthrough for others. That's right. So, so it, <coughs> it was, uh, the permitting meeting went on all day. Another probably half hour tournaments or so later. I was in another part of the sanctuary, standing over here. Uh, three rows back, and i was standing next to her, a, a real prophet of the Lord. And she came over to me and she said, "Bill, God is looking for a city, a city that would belong entirely to Him." She's speaking word for word, right? Mm-hmm. Half hour earlier. God, God is God was looking for a city, a city that would belong entirely to Him. And once He gets that one city, it will cause a Domino effect across the nation. And I started to turn to her and go. To she goes, and I think Reading is that city. So she's come certainly all. a prophetess of the Lord. You know, come on. Yeah, it, it was a it was a word that's supposed to cause a domino effect across the nation. The first city that gets the breakthrough will prepare a breakthrough for all the other cities. That's awesome.
0: I was trying to find my notes from a couple of weeks ago, but because I had the dates, but uh, written down. But you know, when Roger Bannister broke the four-minute mile, I think it was the year before, or very uh, right before he broke the four-minute mile, they did a scientific study on the human body, and they said that it was impossible for a human being to run faster f- uh, to break the four-minute mile, run fast enough to break the four-minute mile. In fact. One doctor actually said if, if a man, if a human being ran fast enough to break the four-minute mile, it would actually cause him to be mentally ill. That was one of the statements. Yeah, you get on, you can Google it, you can see the crazy ideas they had. When Roger Bannister broke the four-minute mile, I, and I'm sorry, I don't have the, I wish I would have had the notes with me, but I think it was four months later, three or four months later, a, a, a gentleman named John, I don't remember his last name, broke his, broke Roger Bannister's um, record and I think it was the next year 17 people broke the four-minute mile and what happened you know it's just like Bill was sharing what happened is how many of you know that when they broke the four-minute mile obviously they broke a physical barrier we know that they they ran fast enough to break a four-minute mile but something else happened in the spirit people began to believe that they could break the four-minute mile And when they began to believe they could break the four-minute mile, runner after runner after runner began to break the four-minute mile. And uh, and so when Bill was sharing this um, this whole thing about you know it causing like having one city, what would happen if one city had a breakthrough that actually infiltrated every part of the city, you know from 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 children to old people, from poor people to rich people from educated people to uneducated people, from the school system to the courtyard, but in every area of society was infected and influenced by revival. What would that look like? And wouldn't it be awesome, how many people, how many churches were, for instance, influenced by being able to go to Toronto and see what was happening? I I understand the impartation part, but right now I'm just talking about the seed. Just being able to look around and go, this is what it looks like, when God is completely in charge. And I think that in our lifetime, if we could get... And we, we believe it's ready, We're right about that. But if we could... Listen, if it wasn't ready, if it was a small city like Weaverville, California, with three or 4,000 people, in, and we could drive to Weaverville and just walk the streets and see what happens when a little city like Weaverville was completely... Under the influence of, do you understand? It's like, it's not even how big it is, just, it's just, what would it look like to have all of the city under the influence of God? There's something about capturing a vision, there's something about being able to see what has yet to be seen. In Hebrews chapter 11, and you know this verse well, I'm just going to grab one verse, it's verse 3. It says, By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, this is the part I like, so that what was seen, what is seen, was not made out of things that are visible. What was seen were not made out of things that are visible. On December 15th, 1966, Walt Disney died. And the world lost one of its greatest imagineers. Imagineers—the word "Imagineers" was a, a word that Walt Disney coined for people, for dreamers and visionaries that he would actually gather, and they would have these interactive sessions where he would say things like, "Let's let's right now, let's just get together and dream of a new ride. Let's just get together and dream of a, a, of, a of a of a new place." And and Walt Disney had this dream all of his life. He wanted to have a place where people could go to, where they could forget the outside world, forget their troubles, and for, for he would he say, for a few days, live in the fantasy of fun. And so, in 1966, S- uh, December 15th, Walt Disney died. But in 19 and but on October 1st, 1971, they dedicated Walt Disney's greatest dream, Disney World. In Florida, in in Florida, Orlando, Florida, and when they were dedicating Walt Disney during the dedication, and uh, uh, Walt Disney's brother Roy was presiding over the dedication, and when they're doing the ribbon cutting, a man came up to Roy Disney, and he said, "Oh, if only Walt had seen this." And Roy turned to him and said. Walt did, or you never would have. And that's exactly what Hebrew says. Hebrew says that the things that are made, the things that are created, the things that are seen, were created from the things that are not seen. And I want to propose to you that everything that we see, from this pulpit to anything—I mean, anything that's, that is visible in this world—was first created in the imagination of somebody. Even you were created in the image of God. What God imagined, you became. How many know that God is the chief imagineer? God is the chief dreamer. He's the chief creator. And God imagines, speaks, and watches it happen. How many of you know that it is in dreaming and imagining that we begin to gestate the ideas of God? And tonight I'd want to talk to you a little bit about that. In Genesis chapter 30, I remember Bill teaching on Genesis 30 many many years ago, probably, oh I don't know, I'm so bad at time, but probably more than 20 years ago. And it's the story of Jacob. In fact, we I tell it all the time. Why don't we just read a portion of it in Genesis chapter 30? And I remember years ago being inspired by the story. It's a story of where Jacob negotiates with, with his father-in-law his father in law Levin uh, he 's pretty much he 's pretty much a liar and a deceiver, and so Jacob continually negotiates a new wage with his father in law for you know his father in law might say, "Well, you can have you know, these sheep right here, and when those sheep start to really multiply jacob 's father Levin, comes in and changes the deal in fact when Jacob, when he when Jacob's ready to go after 14 years of working for his father-in-law, he tells his father-in-law, "Look, I'm I'm leaving. I'm getting out of here." And his father-in-law says, "You know, name your wage and I'll pay it." And Jacob makes this comment. He says, "Listen, you have changed my wage ten times. Every time Jacob negotiates a wage, a way to be paid by his father-in-law, and that w- and God prospers that way. His father-in-law gets an idea to change his wage." So finally, they come to this, they come to this, uh, they negotiate, and Jacob's, you know, finally thinking, you know, I got to figure out some way that my father in law cannot cheat me out of my wage. And so he negotiates for all the spotted and speckled sheep and goats. In other words, if the sheep and goats are solid colored, then they are clearly his father's. But if they're multicolored, they're his. And then the craziest thing happens in Genesis 30. And you can read it, let's go down to verse 37. And then Jacob took fresh rods of popular and almond uh, plain trees, and he peeled white stripes in them, exposing the white which was in the rods. And he set the rods which he peeled in front of the flocks, in the gutters, even the watering troughs, where the flocks came to drink. And they made it when they came to drink. So the flocks made it by the rods, and the flocks brought forth striped, speckled, and spotted. Jacob separated the lambs and made the flocks face towards the striped, and all the black and uh, I'm sorry, and all the black and the flock of Levin, he put in the new her- in his own herds apart, and he put them in Levin's flock. In other words, he separated the spot and speckled, the striped, the multicolored sheep and goats were his. But the crazy part of the story is it says that he takes he takes branches And he carves spots and speckles and stripes in them he puts them down by the watering trough by the watering hole where the sheep and goats mate and when the sheep and goats have in their vision in front of them these branches with spots and speckles carved in them they begin to reproduce spotted and speckled sheep and goats and if you read on you find out that Jacob only put The the branches, the spot and speckled branches, in front of the strong sheep and goats, and all the ones that were maimed and had, you know, genetic problems. He let them reproduce. Those became his (laughs) father-in-laws, and uh, Jacob becomes wealthy. Now, how many of you know that this is not just a lesson in agriculture? In fact, what's really interesting, just as a side note, in the book of Proverbs, it says, you know, if you read Proverbs chapter one. It, it tells you these are the reasons why Solomon wrote Proverbs, and one of the reasons it says is so that you can understand riddles. The crazy thing is, if you read Proverbs, it doesn't seem like there's a, one riddle in the Book of Proverbs, or is there? And what I'm getting at is this: How many of you know that oftentimes God's? How, how many times you? Know, how many times? How many of you know that oftentimes God has dimensions to truth? He creates, he creates truth so that it's multidimensional, so that if you don't have a humble and hungry heart, if you're arrogant and proud, all you see, for instance, is sheep that reproduce spotted and speckled offspring when they watched, when they looked at branches. But if you think a little deeper, you realize that this is not just a lesson in agriculture, but this is actually a metaphor, a riddle, if you will, in which God is teaching us how His sheep reproduce. That we reproduce what we see. And how many of you know that the watering hole is a place of reflection? It's a place where we, we, we view. It's a place where we see. And it's here that we imagine, dream, and envision the future. As we begin to... As we begin to meditate on these ideas, our hearts become a kind of womb where we gestate them like seeds until we give birth to them as offspring. Now, I know several of you are like, this sounds really new agey. Well, it is because the new age people stole our stuff. Part of the challenge we have as Christians is that when people who don't have the right heart, steal our stuff, we often react and go, well, that that can't be God because the occult uses that, the New Age movement uses that. And and how many of you know that it's God who created that stuff? And the New Age movement has uh, crystals, and God lives on a crystal sea. They they love the symbol of the rainbow, and the Bible says that there's a rainbow over His throne. And they love the symbol of the, of the owl. And how many of you know that God's the one who created owls? So on and so forth. So we're getting our stuff back. In, um, in Luke um, chapter 2, I think uh, we may have read out of this verse today. But in Luke chapter 2, Mary has an angel come to her and he begins to prophesy to her about the Messiah. He begins to tell her that she's going to be with child and that this child is going to be the Savior of the world and that much joy and gladness is going to come from the birth of this child. And it says this, it says that Mary, verse 19 of chapter 2, says, But Mary treasured all these things in her heart. I'm sorry. Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. How many know that Mary was impregnated with the Christ? It says that she pondered these things, that she, that she, that she um, treasured these things in her heart. And as she pondered those things, how many know that she was gestating the Christ, and she gave birth to the Savior of the world? I, I want to propose to you that Proverbs twenty nine eighteen says, Without a vision, the people perish, but happy is he who keeps the law. I think... Um, New American Standard says, where there's no vision, the people are unrestrained, or they wander aimlessly, but happy is he who keeps the law. In the New King King James Version says, where there's no vision, the people perish, but he that keepeth the law is happy. And um, I want to talk to you tonight a little bit about vision. I I, I really believe that God wants to release vision on us. I, I really believe that God wants to release dreamers to dream, imagineers to begin to imagine. And I really believe that when we understand the power of vision, the power of dreaming, that we when we realize that when we begin to imagine with God, when we begin to envision with God, that we gestate the dreams of God. <laughs> and we begin to give birth to to things that the world has yet to see. And um, it says, and Michelangelo said this, he said, I saw the angel in the marble, and I carved to set it free. Michael looked at a boulder with his natural eyes and, and with his imagination he, pitch, he pictured an angel imprisoned in the stone. And it, he began to be motivated to relentless chip, relentlessly chip away at the stone until he saw with his eyes what he saw with his imagination. The Bible says that without a vision the people go unrestrained or they wander aimlessly but happy is he who keeps the law. And how many of you know that Uh, He's not talking about the law of Moses. Like he's not saying, if you have a vision, you'll keep the law of Moses. If you have a vision, you'll read the whole Old Testament. You'll keep all the words of the Old Testament. He's talking about the law of restraint. You know, if you if you if you don't have a vision for your life, then the problems of your life they become they become obstacles. The the goal of life when you lack vision is that you'd stay out of pain or find comfort. But it says, without a vision, people perish, but happy is who keeps the law. Let me give you an example. I've used this many times, but... If you don't like... If you're overweight and you don't like being heavy, and you go work out at the gym, you spend two hours working out the first day, you work out, what happens when you wake up the next morning in bed? <laughs> you can't move. I want to propose to you That you'll never get skinny By hating being fat And there are a few exceptions There are people who are really, really disciplined I don't like those people I don't build friendships with them Because they make me feel guilty Listen, I don't believe that most people can get skinny by not wanting to be fat. I don't, believe that, that, I don't believe that you can normally capture a positive by hating a negative. But I believe that if you have a vision for a great body, and you wake up the next morning in pain, it's vision that gives pain a purpose. It's vision that causes you happy. It says, without a vision people perish, but happy is he who keeps the law. What, what's he talking about the law? I think he's talking about the law of restraint. I think he's saying that if you have a vision, you will restrain your options to capture the vision. But when you lack vision, your goal of life becomes staying out of pain or finding pleasure. So what do you do? You wander aimlessly. Because why? Because every, every obstacle becomes something to go around instead of go through. And I believe that God wants us to realize that vision is what gives life a purpose. The ability to imagine life... Not as it is, but as it should be. The the ability to dream with God. The ability to let our imagination be impregnated with the ideas of God. There's something about being pregnant with God's ideas. To be able to see what is yet to be seen. So that we can bring forth God's creation. (laughs) I think when, when we imagine something in our mind's eye, a phenomena occurs where our spirit, in our spirit that causes us to want to see in the natural what we perceived in our hearts. I think that what separates good leaders from great leaders is that great leaders have this incredible ability to envision people. Great leaders can impregnate it, impregnate people with vision. Great leaders can take something that they can see and they can impregnate other people with that same vision. I I think that it's important that we realize that there's a difference between mission and vision. I've watched people, in fact, I've watched leaders exchange those as those terms as synonymous. They'll 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 use the word vision and the word mission interchangeably as if they're the same thing. And and I and I believe that mission is the purpose behind vision. I think mission is the why. Like mission is the heart of why we're doing what we're doing. But if the Bible doesn't say without a mission people perish. It says without a vision people perish. And I believe that, that oftentimes there are people that know the heart of God. And how many of you know that you can have a great vision, but if you don't have but if you don't have the purposes of God in your vision, you get to the top of the mountain and you're at the t- you're on the wrong mountain. <laughs> You get, wouldn't it be, a, wouldn't it be a bummer to have a great vision and finish your life having accomplished the vision and find out at the end of your life that the vision you had, the mission of that vision wasn't in God. In other words, it wasn't God's, in, it wasn't in God's purposes. Even though you, you finished this vision, even though you completed this vision, when you got to the end of your life, wouldn't it be a bummer to find out that it wasn't God's vision? And so mission is the why. Mission is the purposes of God. And oftentimes, we think that, we're, that people will be inspired to constrain their options. They'll be inspired to keep the law, if you will, just by knowing the purposes of God. But I, I believe that the, that the mission is the why, but the vision is the what. The vision is, what does it look like? You know, if I, um, if I said to you, if I told you all the reasons why we need to build an orphanage in Africa... I can tell you about the social ills of Africa, and the, the conditions that AIDS have, have caused in families, and, and uh, malaria, and so on and so forth, and, and I, we can talk about all the reasons why we need to build an orphanage in Africa, and you could get in a plane and fly to Africa to help build the orphanage, but how many of you know, until you see the blueprint, you can't hammer a single nail? It's the purposes of God are important because we want to make sure that the vision is rooted in the mission from God. But with, but it's not it's not the mission that keeps people motivated. It's vision because something happens when people can see inside of them something that need, that is, is from God. In other words, what I'm getting at is this: is that when people when they can see it, when they can, when they can actually imagine it in their mind there's this inherent phenomena that happens in which when you see something internally, you want to give birth to it externally. Now, a lot, of, a lot of leaders inspire people to repeat a vision. A parrot can do that. People haven't caught the vision when they can repeat it. They've caught the vision when they can see it. Let me just repeat that. People have not caught a vision when they can repeat your words. They've caught the vision when they can see it. Something happens inherently when people can see something internally. When you see something internally, something happens in you where you want to have it. Listen, developers, for instance... People who build buildings and develop properties, they understand this principle, even though they may not be believers. That's why, when they're going to build a building that's, let's say, a huge skyscraper or uh, develop this, you know, thousand acres of property that's going to cost millions of dollars, do you, know, do you know what they do when they're going to need millions of dollars to finance a project? They build a model. Now. Do you know how much some of those models cost? Sometimes they'll spend 40, 50, 60, 70, 80,000 dollars to build a model of a project so that they can get millions of dollars. Now think about this: If you need, let's say, 100 million dollars and you don't have any of it, does it make sense that you would spend 60,000 more to build a model? Now you need 100 million, 60,000. It feels like you're going backwards. So why do developers have a model built of something that they see in their imagination? I'll tell you why. Because financers are often not visionaries. And they know that they can describe the project with words to people who are not imagineers, and they will not impregnate those people internally with words. So what do they do? They build models so that people who who they're looking to finance it can see it. Why? Because once you see it, once you see it in your spirit, you want to give birth to it. Hmm. The greater the mission. Let me just read you this. The greater the mission is, the clearer the vision must be, because huge assignments most often require high risks of sacrifice or risk to see them fulfilled. The level of sacrifice an environment requires determines the measure of clarity necessary for people to follow. When a leader lacks the skill of impartation, sacrifice begins to separate the people who can instinctively envision from those who can't. Let me just read that last part. When a leader lacks the skill of impartation, sacrifice begins to separate the people who can instinctively envision from those who can't. In other words, if, you're gonna, if, if we're going to build, I think our uh, budget, annual budget is something like $17 million here or something. If we're going to build something that's going to cost a couple hundred thousand dollars, we can probably come up here and maybe even just describe the mission of it. We can just maybe describe the, the purposes of it, and over a a year we could raise a couple hundred thousand dollars or maybe we could Just give you a few details on a PowerPoint But how many of you know that if we're going to build a 30 or 40 or 50 million dollar building? There's a whole bunch of people who are not visionaries and how many of you know that the level of sacrifice that an environment requires or a project requires determines the necessity of the clarity of the vision. So I can't just tell you about a $40 million or $50 million building. Because a whole bunch of you are going to go, I, don't, I can't see the point of that. I can't see. I can't see the point of building that building. But if we be, if, we, if we had a PowerPoint, you know these new PowerPoints, that they have that are like multimedia and they take you inside the building they walk you around have you noticed that those that that kind of that kind of technology is being used in real estate now they want you to get on and do a virtual tour what are they hoping is going to happen during the virtual tour (laughs) they're hoping to impregnate you with a vision because once you are impregnated with a vision Something happens inside of you that you want to see it come to pass. I think that God wants to inspire us and teach us the skill of imparting vision to other people. I was thinking about, um, you know, there's a story, Bill used to tell this story a lot years ago about three bricklayers somebody came up to three bricklayers they're all working on this wall and they came to the first man and they said what are you, what are you doing? What are you, what, are you, what are you building? he said what is it that you're doing? he said I'm laying bricks what's it look like I'm doing? he went to the next man who's working on the wall just a few feet from him he said what are you doing? he said I'm building a wall that's what I'm doing I am building a wall he went to the last man at the end of the wall and he said, "What are you doing?" He said, "I'm building a great cathedral for God." Who do you think's most motivated? I guarantee you that the guy, the first guy, that guy's looking at his watch to figure out what time break time is. You know why? Because all he's doing is laying bricks. There's a whole bunch of people in life all they're doing is laying bricks. And they're thinking about how hot it is outside, and how hard they're working, and how little bit of money they're getting, and every brick is another testimony to slavery in their life. And they spend their whole life waiting to get off of work so they can go do something they love. But how many of you know that when you're building a great cathedral, that life takes on a whole other meaning? In the school of ministry, we have something called vision-based discipline. We used to, you know, every organization needs people to behave, let's face it. And we're like, we don't like control, we we don't do control. And it is true, we don't do control, but how many of you know that if someone ran up on the stage right now, we do control? (laughs) If somebody came up here and uh, pulled a gun on on the congregation, we would do control in our school of ministry it's important to realize that we need people to behave a certain way. How do you get those people to behave that's the question well one way that you get them to behave is you increase the punishment till the fear of misbehaving overcomes the Torment of whatever it is that you're doing. I'm bored. I don't come to school. Okay, well, these are the 14 ways we are going to kill you if you don't get here on time. You didn't do your homework? Okay, put your hand in the spice. We have our ways. Oh, you didn't pay your bill? Okay. You know, and so there are. (laughs) You know, know, and honestly in the early days I used to lead the tormentors (laughs) Sit around dreaming about different ways We could increase the pain levels that were still legal To get people to behave And I'm exaggerating some, of course Some And one day we, we started... Interacting and thinking and we started asking ourselves questions like, why don't people behave? And we came to this verse, this is Proverbs 29. Without a vision, people wander aimlessly. But happy is he who keeps the law. And we began to realize that, first of all, that most people behaved really well when they first got to school. They came with a vision. They came and they're like, I'm going to be supernatural. God's going to use me. I'm going to see signs and wonders in my life. And people gave up lots. They sacrificed huge stuff to be here. And they get here, and over time, that vision begins to fade in some people. And when the vision begins to fade, you can tell because no longer do they keep the law. No longer are they restraining their behavior. And one day we began to talk among ourselves, and I don't remember actually who inspired the conversation, but I remember the conversation very clearly. We began to talk about, you know, the real problem is, is that our students must have had a vision to come here because the sacrifice that they made, the great sacrifice they made to be here said, listen, you don't do that unless you've seen yourself as a revivalist. But somehow the vision has faded in them. And so we began to do this, this thing called vision-based discipline, where we get the person in the room, and instead of talking to them, I don't mean we didn't talk to them about their homework, or about their behavior, That we get around to that, but we began by reminding them of who they are. We began to ask them, why did you come here? Oh, I don't know. I don't know what I'm doing here. I don't even know if I'm supposed to be here. That's the problem. I know, you're acting like you don't know if you're supposed to be here. But why did you come? Tell me the story of why you came. Well, all right. You really want to hear it? No, I really don't, but you need to hear it. (laughs) You tell me why you came here. And they began to talk. Well, you know, I was working at the grocery store, and we just bought a new home, and we were a happy family back then. We were a happy family. And then we read this book, this uh, When Heaven Falls Down from the Earth or whatever the Earth gets invaded by Heaven book. We were reading that together as a family. Yeah, I remember. We were sitting around the table. We were sitting around the
1: table reading this book. And I said to my wife, I'm making a living, but I'm not making a difference. That's what I'm doing here.
0: I've come to make a difference. I'm so sorry, I'm going to go do all my homework. (laughs) You've lost your vision. You're laying bricks, and you came here to build a great cathedral. You've lost your vision. I'm going to tell you something. If you're bored, there's only two reasons you'd be bored as a Christian. You've either fulfilled your vision and you need a new one, or you lost it somewhere along the way. Huh. Moses you know, he needed to God gave him this vision to take these people into this promised land. You know, he's interacting with God and he's he's captured the vision and God's seized his heart with this vision. To take these people from a slave camp into this amazing place where, in fact, you know, just the land. God called it promised land. That's better than Disneyland. God said, I'm going to take you to promised land. And listen, right now, we know when God gave him the vision, you have to remember that the people were building houses in the promised land. God inspired people to build houses. And God said, listen... You're going to go into a land of promises that the people are building houses that are yours. And all you need to do is go in there and tell them to leave (laughs) or die. And Moses realized that the level of sacrifice that this vision required, it required the people, the Israelites, To see this clearly, if they were going to be inspired to drive these inhabitants out of this land. Here's the biggest struggle Moses had. The people he's trying to inspire have grown up in slavery. And the nature of slavery is that when people who are slaves don't think. And when people don't think, they create dream free zones. Vision-free zones. See, when someone else does all the thinking for you, how many know if you don't think, you don't dream? And if you don't dream, you're only motivated by who, where the most punishment is. And so here's Moses. He's got all these people that have become a nation, but every single one of them has come out of slavery into the wilderness. And Moses has to try to figure out how to inspire people who have never thought for themselves. To become visionaries, to apprehend this dream that God has given Moses. I've heard the cries of my people, and I'm taking them not into a wilderness, I'm taking them into a promised land. And so Moses, this is in uh, Numbers chapter 13, Moses gets 12 spies, and he sends them into the land. Now, we realize from this, from our perspective, many years later, that That the spies, most ten of the twelve spies, misunderstood Moses' instructions. Because Moses did not tell the spies, go up and see if we can take the land. He did not tell them, go up and see if we should do this. He said, go up and find, go up and check out the land. Tell me about the topography, the geography, about the fruit of the land. And this is what he said, um, let me just read it to you. And make every effort, he said in verse 20, make every effort to get some of the fruit of the land. So when the spies come back, they come back with this huge, carrying these, this huge um, bunch of grapes. Why? Because when you're trying to inspire slaves who've never dreamed, you have to give them something they can see They can smell, they can feel, they can hear, and they can taste, and they can touch. So they heard the vision. Moses had the spies get up in front of all the people and describe in great detail the land. What was he trying to do? He was trying to inspire the people. He was trying to impregnate the people with a vision. But he wasn't done with that. He gave them grapes, fruit from the land. Here, taste this. Smell this. Feel this. Look at this. How do you inspire people who have never dreamed? Yeah, you take them to Disneyland. You take them to a place where someone else dreamt. Just two weeks ago, we took all of our grandkids and our, my parents and all of my kids to Disneyland I don't like Disneyland. My wife thought, "You know what? This would be a lot of fun to come back here for a couple of days without the kids." I'm like, "What for?" <laughs> this is a trigger for anxiety. I mean, I would just be watching other people being tormented in the same way I was when your kids are eating cotton candy for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and they don't even need a ride. And leading them is like herding cats. They have selective hearing. They're practicing for marriage. But we walked around Disneyland, and I was just, you know, actually we had a great time. Watching your kids have fun is, is fun. Isn't it? Watching your kids play sports, or watching your kids have fun, is just inspiring. But, we walked around Disneyland and I just one day I just sat on the bench while the kids were riding rides and I was thinking well you know what in the in 1952 when this man was dreaming of this place there wasn't a place like this on earth there was nothing like this ever on earth this man this man dreamt about some, I mean this man dreamt about something that was completely impossible and we're walking around, looking at the and you know what he did? Not only did he dream, but he taught other people to dream. It whole teams of people who were dreamers. I told you they called them imagineers. And I thought, what would happen if leaders began to teach people how to dream? What would happen? You know, many of those rides and many, many of the areas of the, of that of that theme park. Walt Disney never dreamt himself. Somebody else on the team dreamt about that. And you know what's happening? They're adding on every year. And you, you go into this one place and they tell you, this is our 10-year vision. And Walt died a long time ago. But what did he do? He inspired people to dream for themselves. What would happen if we began to inspire people to be imagine ears in God? That we taught people this is how to dream. And if if we were if we were became with a cloud of witnesses someday, we are up in heaven and we're watching our imagineers build on to the dreams. Instead of it dying, they're building bigger ones, they're building more of them. And I'm like, man, this is such an amazing example of what God wants revival to be. Something that 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 other generations catch. And they build on. They make it better. They add technology to it. They inspire other dreamers. We were, um, we, we, um, I just went to CBN. I did a a show on CBN, which was amazing. I, you know, I'm just getting to know those guys. First time I've ever actually been there. Banning's been there. I think Bill's been there two or three times. And Chris Kilal has been there. And Kim Walker. So several people from our team have been there. Um, and, the, and CBN is on Regent University campus. And I really thought I was going there to do a TV show. When I got there, I started looking around and I'm like, Lord, you brought me here to, to impregnate me, didn't you? Because you told me, you told us that we were going to have a university. That we were going to raise up students in government, and in media, in education. That we're going to come out of our university, and we're going to have a university based on excellence, based on the spirit, based on wisdom, on intelligence, and, and you just you told us that some of the greatest leaders in the world were going to come out of this university. There'd be presidents, there'd be there be governors, there'd be actors, there'd be leaders in every in every realm of society. And Lord, that's the mission, but I haven't been able to picture it. I haven't been able to see it inside my spirit, man. And so at Regent, when we got to Regent, I don't know how many acres they have, it must be, I don't know, a couple thousand or least, a thousand at least. I don't know. It's huge. And every building is—it's all brick. Every building's brick, and the in front of most of the buildings there's huge columns, like you'd see in the front of the White House. And you walk into the place—I mean, it's like n- no nothing spared. This is not—you know—I'll uh, oh, be careful. It's being podcasted. Nice. There's a spirit of excellence on everything they do, and everybody who I talk to. A policeman picked me up. CBN has their own police department. I mean, they carry guns. They're a legitimate police department with 30 officers on, on their staff. And the police officer who picked me up is a Holy Spirit revivalist. And, he, and he's driving me. He picks me up and, you know, he's like, he's happy. And, he, and the policeman hugs me. I look over, he's got a gun. And we're driving along. he's like, tell me the stories of revival. The police officer, the secretaries, the the maintenance people. I mean, everywhere I went, the people they're like, "We're working. We came here from this, from that place, just like here." Like these people are inspired. They're not they're not laying bricks. They're building a great cathedral. Everybody that I, I found, I must have been introduced to thirty or forty people in a day. All those people were. They all came here to serve a vision. And there was everywhere I went, from the from the studio to to the the hotel to the restaurant, which they own all restaurant, the hotel, the the, the campus, the, the media place. Everything he did was just excellent. And I'm like, man, Lord, you didn't bring me here to do a television show. You brought me here to get me pregnant. You got me here. You brought me here to say, you know, the mission I've been teaching you about. Yeah, this is what it looks like. This is what it looks like. I'm, I just walked into the promised land and got impregnated with a vision. This is what it looks like. And when I left that place, you, something happens. When you can see it inside, you suddenly feel like you're pregnant. Like you're gestating something. Like something you're like, you need to give birth to something. And I left there and I'm like, something's changed in me. I, I, I thought I was going to meet Pat Robertson and Bill said, you better get him to lay your hands on it. I mean, I'm like, I tried. I've tried. They protected him pretty well. I could have done what some of you do, but I wanted to be invited back. I'm almost done. I want to read you a speech. Part of a speech that was given in 1962, 1963, August 28, 1963, by Dr. Martin Luther King, entitled I Have a Dream. I just want to read you one part of this part of it. He said, I am I am not unmindful that some of you have come here out of great trials and tribulations. Some of you come from fresh from the moral of jail cells and some have come from areas where your quest the quest for freedom left you battered by the storms of persecution and staggered by the winds of police brutality you've been the veterans of creative suffering they continue but you've continued with faith that unearned suffering is redemptive you've continued to work with faith that unearned suffering is redemptive You go back to Mississippi, you go back to Alabama, you go back to Southern Carolina, South Carolina, so you go back to Georgia, you go back to Louisiana, you go back to the slums, to the ghettos of our northern cities, knowing that somehow the situation can and will be changed. Let us not wallow in the valley of despair, I say to you today, my friends. Even so, even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, still I have a dream. It's a, de- it's a dream deeply rooted in, America, in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day, even in the state of Mississippi, a state swelling with the heat of injustice, swelling with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but of the content of their character. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day, down in Alabama, in the vicious race, uh, race, racist. With its vic- vicious, sorry. I have a dream down in Alabama with its vicious racists, with its governor having his lips dripping with the words of imposition. And one day, right there in Alabama, little black boys and little black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and little white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day every valley will be exalted and every hill and mountain shall be made low and rough places will become a plain and the crooked places will be made straight and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. This is our hope, this is our faith that I go back to the south with. With this faith, we will be able to hew out the mountain of despair. A stone, we'll be able to hew out in the mountain of despair a stone of hope. With this faith, we'll be able to transform the jaggling discords of our nation into a beautiful sympathy, sym- symphony of brotherhood. With this faith, we'll be able to work together, to pray, to struggle together, to go to jail together, to stand up for freedom together, knowing that we will be free one day. And this is the day, and, and this will be the day, this will be the day when all God's children will be able to sing with new meaning, My country tis of thee, sweet land of liberty, of thee I sing. Let me read you the last paragraph. When this happens, we will allow freedom to ring. We will let it ring from every village, from every hamlet, from every state, from every city. We'll be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, we are free at last. Martin Luther inspired people with what it would look like. What would it look like? He didn't just say, we want to be free people. He began to describe in vision form, this is what it looks like when we win. Would you stand? Many years ago, told this story many times, not in this context. Many years ago, I was laying in the bathtub where I used to pray. The only locked room in our house. <laughs> only room that locked in our house when we had four teenagers. I used to go in there and pray while Kathy made dinner after I got done working. It's kind of my ritual for many years. And one day... I was laying in the bathtub praying, and I was surprised to find God show up. Tells you how inspiring my prayer life was. I'm like, hey, what are you doing here? (laughs) Thought you were praying to me. You're with me always, even in the bathtub. But the Lord began to talk to me about my future. He began to tell me things that I've never heard before. And there we were living in a small city, a town of three, or 4,000 people. And at the time, I still remember, we, Kathy and I owned a, a service station, a little 76 station with a few employees, living up in the mountains, five years from a nervous breakdown. And the Lord began to talk to me about my future. He began to say things to me, that no one has ever said to me before. You know you get saved when you believe in God, but you actually change when you realize He believes in you. And He began to talk to me. Some of the things He's told me in that room, I've never to this day told anyone, not a soul but for a year, it was the greatest visitation I've ever had in my personal life. For a year, I never told anyone at all, not even my wife. Because what God told me that he was doing with my life was so amazing and so great that I figured that the response would either be, I don't know where you got that arrogant thing on you, or... That's a stupid idea. You'll never accomplish that. Now, I knew that wouldn't come from my wife or or my friends, but I feared it. And um, something happens when you have a vision like that. You no longer can live satisfied with what you have. And I began to realize that my destiny wasn't to own some businesses and make some money and give a bunch of money to the kingdom. I realized then that I was making a living, but I was called to make a difference. And it was uh, probably eight years, I don't know the exact time, but it was years later that Bill and I were coming home from Colorado. I don't even know if Bill, I know that you'll remember that part. but And we were, we, Bill had ministered at my, my son and daughter's YWAM camp. And Bill had asked me to go with him, and so Bill was already here at Buffalo, and we hadn't seen each other very much for that year. And so we traveled together and just got caught up, and that was a lot of fun. Have you ever had holy dissatisfaction in your life? I mean, I'm not talking about the complaining kind, where you're just like you're griping and you're not thankful. That that stuff needs to die in us. I'm talking about something you know God did. I was living in the midst of that holy dissatisfaction. I wasn't really sure what I wanted, I just knew what I was dreaming of. And um so on we flew to Colorado together and you know talked along the way and and that that um they put us up in a little cottage, I think, kind of a cottage out in the woods and we were there. F- four days or five or something. And I just remember a couple of things I remember. One is being around Bill again was so inspiring. But the most inspiring thing is what happened when he slept. Because we were in this little cottage together, sleeping a few feet from each other. And I'd get up in the middle of the night to go to the restroom, and I'd look over, and Bill would be completely asleep. But he would just be laying there going, in his sleep, God, I love you. I need more of you. And i will look over, and i go... The first night, it was, I was like... Dude, that's a holy man right there. But by the fifth night, I'm like, that's what I was born for. I was born to be on fire and set other people on fire. And on the way home, we had a short conversation, I think it was in a restaurant, on one of the airports, about coming to do the school ministry. Bill and I talked about doing school ministry several times. I think we'd even been prophesied over by that time by Graham, didn't we? And so it wasn't like I hadn't thought about it, but I'd thought about it, but I hadn't caught a vision for it. You know the difference. And so we talked about it. And um, you know, by now I have four businesses and I've forty or fifty employees. And but by the time I got home, I, I walked in the house and of course Kathy's like, "How how did it go? How was your week?" and it's just I just broke down and cried and said, I just cannot do this anymore. I cannot do this. She's like, what can you not do? I said, I cannot. I cannot work in a business anymore. I'm called to change the world. And she's like, what are you saying? I said, I don't know what I'm saying. I'm just saying that what I'm doing right now, I'm not going to do anymore. And uh, we... I think it was probably a year later that we moved and we actually lost everything. We didn't mean it to happen that way. We just did. We just lost everything. And it was hard to lose everything, but something happens when you have a vision. It doesn't feel... Oh, I can't say like it wasn't sad or anything. I'd be lying, I was like totally cried my eyes out for six months. We lost our house, we lost we lost everything, you know, all of our people we employed lost their jobs. I mean it was it was not it was ugly. (laughs) It was ugly. But there was such a joy about being a part of something that I had dreamt about twenty years before. I guess at that time it would have been like eight, nine years before. This vision just gives your life a purpose. And a a lot of us are running around knowing the purposes of God, but don't have any idea what it looks like. And tonight I just feel like God wants to pull back the veil, and He wants to say, I have a dream. And this is what it looked like. The day before Martin Luther King was assassinated he spoke these words he said I've been up onto the mountain and I've seen the promised land and he said I don't know if I'm going there with you or if you'll get there before me but I know that we're getting there we're going to be there together and the next day he died Everybody needs a dream that's so big. You know, until you have something worth dying for, you don't really have anything worth living for. And until you've seen a vision, you spend most of your time. Until you have a vision from God, you spend all your time trying to save your life. And Jesus said, if you save your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life, how many know that when you lose your life because you've caught a vision from God, you don't mind giving up your life for something that's worth dying for. And I have this feeling that it's a lot harder to live for something than it is to die for something. Because when you die for something, you just have to make a choice once, but when you live, you make it daily. And I just want to pray for you, and I just want you to put your I just want to put your hands on your heart right now. And I want us just to pray right now. Acts 2.17, 18-19, and 19, you know it well. In the last days, I'll pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams, and your young men will see visions. The language of God. Father, right now I just pray for the fulfillment of the word that Joel saw when he said, I'm going to pour out my Spirit, and people are going to begin to dream and they begin to have visions. They're going to have dreams and visions. And oh Lord, I pray right now that you would just impregnate every person in this room. And every person that's watching on Bethel TV. Every person that will, that will see this months from now, that's even, even after it's been archived and, and repeated. Lord, that, that in this message would be seeds of God that in this message would become this message would have the sperm of God the word of God the seed of God to impregnate people with the will of God with the vision of God and no longer would they just have the heart of God but they'd have the mind of Christ they'd begin to see things we'd begin to envision things we begin to be in, in, impregnated with the imagination of God himself lord you've given us This vision to have a university, to build a great sanctuary of worship, to see a movement that would inspire transformation of the whole world. Lord, you've given us a vision for a city, that this one city, this city Reading, would be under the influence of the Holy Spirit. The intoxicating influence of the Holy Spirit. Even unbelievers would act in kingdom ways. That poverty that poverty would not be spoken of in our city as it was in the book of Acts, and there was no need among them, so would be in our city. That there would be nobody in our city who wants a job that doesn't have a job. That there would be no crime in our city. That crime would completely cease in our city. That drug addiction and alcohol addiction would be gone from our city. That when people come into our city, whether they come in, whether they go to Costco or Bethel, that they would be healed. There'd be a healing presence over our city, like it was in the days of Saul when he encountered the prophets and acted like the prophets and returned to his former man, a new man. Lord, that an educational system would embrace the kingdom. That our police department would be under the influence of God. That every area of influence, every area of authority would be under the influence of the kingdom. That it would be hard to go to hell from here. That even people that committed crimes would come and turn themselves in. Because conviction would be so strong here. Lord, I just pray that the churches would be on fire. That the families, molestation, and fatherlessness, and abortion, and social ills, and divorce, would not be spoken of in the walls of our city. That this would be a city under the influence of the king and his kingdom. Lord, may you get us, may you allow us to dream what it would be like to live in a city like that. Lord, we pray for that right now. In Jesus' name, amen.